Do babies have a natural instinct to sleep? Getting a better understanding of what my partner needed and what my children really needed, that's made a huge difference. Yes, yeah. otherwise I can get a little bit overwhelmed. <laughs> yeah, I think lots of parents can relate yeah. to that. You're listening to Kindling Conversation with Siobhan Hunt. What are gender stereotypes? Why does it matter whether you're a boy or a girl? What does it mean to be transgender? If you were to struggle answering these questions, so would I. I'm reading them from the back of a book by Juno Dawson called What is Gender? How Does It Define Us? and Other Big Questions. Juno Dawson is an award-winning author and journalist, former primary school teacher and trans activist, and she joins us now in the studio. Thank you for having me. Why did you decide to write this book? Because it is pitched at children, isn't it? So I was asked to write this one. It was quite unusual in that the publisher came to me. This was part of a series. There'd been similar titles about refugees and feminism. And they are tackling those questions that children will ask. (laughs) And they're, they're often quite difficult to answer. And obviously with my background as both a primary school teacher and a trans woman, you know, I was a perfect fit to answer this book. Although, of course... On one hand, you know, my experience is just my experience. You know, I do not speak on behalf of the wider community. There is no one way to be transgender. So it was a, it was quite a difficult book to write, actually. It wasn't easy. I can imagine. I mean, this part about you being a primary school teacher, mm-hmm. it intrigues me because in some ways I feel like these questions are more uncomfortable for parents to answer than for children to ask like kids yeah oh they do yeah I mean I I taught year one for a while which in the UK is five and six year olds and they will just ask they have no filter and you know they they will why is that man bald you know quite loudly (laughs) near a bald man and and you just kind of have to take it on the chin um it's and I think I know from friends I have who are parents and through being a teacher that parents worry far more far more about how to tackle these questions than children do about answering them. And in a way, do you think this book, even though you've written it for kids, it's something that parents will learn from as they read it as well? Yeah, I mean, I think books are an amazing safe space for adults and children. And I've done nonfiction before. I've done a book for older young adults called This Book is Gay, which is basically a guide to coming out and identity for LGBT people. And more than any of my other books, that's the one I get fan mail about, not just from teenagers, but from their parents who say, it's really hard to talk about these things in reference to my child or myself. However, talking about a book is really safe. And I think that's true of a lot of picture books about difficult issues as well, which is it's much, much easier to talk about a book than it is to talk about your relationship or your child or yourself. And I think that's what this title can do as well, which is it's a very neutral ground to discuss some really big issues without having to get personal. Mm. And do you have an idea when it's appropriate to talk to kids about this stuff? Because uh, I'm going to do a bit of TMI here. So um, my son happened to, he found a condom and asked me what it was. And my husband happened to be there and he was like, I don't know. He said it was something like a Frisbee. And I went, no, it's not. And then I went into a very straight description of what it was. And even while I was doing it, my son's only four. Someone's going to call docs on me. But um <laughs> At the time, I thought, no, he's asked a question. I just want to tell him a straight answer. He's not a sexualized being. He's only four. Um, 
But still in my head, I was thinking, oh, God, if he goes to daycare and he starts talking about condoms to his mates, then I'm in big trouble. Is that a murky water? What do you think? I think the exact right time to approach these subjects is as and when they come up. And if that's when your child sees a condom machine in a bathroom, then that's the appropriate thing. And, And it's about pitching it on the right level. And I think... You know, the real shame is particularly when teachers aren't trusted to get this kind of thing right or when parents aren't trusted to get this kind of thing right. And obviously you're not going to go into like a wild description. <laughs> but what you will say is, oh, that's something um, for mums and dads for if they don't want any more babies. And kids are like, cool. Got the answer. Yeah, there's my answer. It's something for mummies and daddies when they don't want to have babies. And they're quite satisfied with that, I think. Yeah. In my experience, kids sort of start to ask questions around three or four mm-hmm. when they actually can form sentences. <laughs> yep. As soon as they can speak, <laughs> you know, comes the question. There it goes. Um, so these days, there are more diverse family configurations mm-hmm. the bef- than before. How do you explain that to kids? Because, you know, you could have two mums, two dads, yeah. you can have blended families, all that stuff going on. How do you go about explaining that? I think, again, young children are so able to recognise those fundamentals that love is love and family is family. And when I was teaching, there was a a gorgeous pitch book called Untango Mix 3, which has caused wild trouble across America. It's been universally banned and challenged and removed from library shelves. This is a book about two male penguins who adopt an egg. (laughs) <laughs> and that, that, is, that is as controversial as the book gets. A park keeper gives two male penguins an egg. They sit on the egg. It hatches. They raise a chick. <laughs> this book was banned, I repeat. But when you read that book to three, four, five-year-olds, they're like, they so empathise with the injustice that Silo and Roy can't lay an egg of their own and that they're try- at one point Roy and Silo try to hatch a rock and you know and if that doesn't break your heart nothing will and so when Mr. Gramsci gives them this egg children rejoice because they're like oh finally and it feels like a triumph and they just don't even recognize that there would be anything out of the ordinary about the fact that Roy and Silo are both male penguins um we we learn prejudice and we learn intolerance. Children are incredibly open-minded. And this relates back to gender as well, which is if you you tell a five or six-year-old that, oh, you know, she was born a boy, but now she's not. It's like with the condom, they're just like, cool. (laughs) They very much take it at face value because they haven't learned that there's any politics behind it. So do you think that books like this one and um, talking about themes like your book talks about, should we actually be introducing them as soon as we can, like from daycare? I think it's interesting because I think when you explore picture books, like really early nursery books, when you strip away the various layers of dancing animals and princes and princesses, what they are very often about is celebrating difference, acceptance, equality, diversity, and the fact that all people are created the same. And these key messages basically underpin the bigger political messages, which is, of course, 
gay couples should have the same rights as straight couples. Of course, trans people should have the same rights as everybody else. And, you know, as you get older, yes, you will start to appreciate that there's a very complicated kind of political history to kind of wade through. But really what it boils down to is that these incredibly fundamental concepts, love, family, acceptance, tolerance, kindness. And this is something that literally three-year-olds can appreciate. And I think that's how you approach these big issues. You strip them back to, yes, this family is different, but I hope you're going to be kind. And really, I think that's, strangely, that's what we're asking of three-year-olds. It's also what we're asking of our politicians. (laughs) And yet the politicians sometimes seem to find it harder. Yeah, yeah. Yes, exactly. You're listening to Kindling Conversation. I'm here with Juno Dawson, who's an author and journalist, and we're talking about her book, What is Gender? How Does It Define Us? and Other Big Questions. Before becoming a full-time writer, you were a primary school teacher, um, and I believe you did some work with bullying then. Can you tell us about that? Um I was really badly bullied at school. And so a lot of my friends questioned, why would you want to go back into education? You know, this was not a happy time for you. But I did see an opportunity to make a difference and to go back and kind of try be the kind of teacher who wouldn't look the other way, which was so indicative of my education. Um, and I was very, very lucky that even as a brand new, newly qualified teacher, I was asked to join various projects that tackled bullying in schools, like zero tolerance. And, you know, it's certainly the case now in the UK that it's built into the national curriculum that schools have to monitor and particularly bullying, racial bullying, homophobic bullying, transphobic bullying, um, sexist and sexual bullying. These things have to be recorded now as a way of monitoring, you know, what is making children feel unsafe and unhappy at school. And I think the the way we do that is we, we listen to students and we ask them, you know, what is your experience of schooling like? As a parent, nothing scares me more than the idea that either my child would be bullied Mm. or that they would be a bully. Mm. And I think um, parents do struggle with that sometimes. We can talk about it in the the studio and I can read books about it. But if my child comes home crying and distressed because someone's been mean to them, all of a sudden it becomes really awkward because our school's small and I know the other kids... Who do you think in that scenario, is it that you go to the teachers or do parents have to learn how to better handle these situations? What do you think the answer is there? It's so hard because there's always going to be that fundamental difference between the parent who has maybe one, two or three children and the teacher who sometimes has 30, 32 children. (laughs) And and, and so there's always going to be this conflict between those two things. I think what helped me... I hope I get this right. It's been a while since I was in the classroom. It was bullying. It's important to keep in the, the sort of the two P's, which is it should be persistent and powerless. Um, in any given day, school children will be both kind and unkind. And that's the reality of when you put a whole bunch of children in a very small space. Children do. They get grisly. They get tired. They're overworked. They're overstressed. They snap. And yes, sometimes children will come home from school having had a bad day. That's also true of people who work in an office. Um, The difference is it's when it's happening time and time again. And the other P is powerless. So if you've got 10 kids singling out 
one child, immediately that's a cause for concern. That becomes something different to just a child saying, I don't like your shoes, which might happen. But if all of a sudden, if it's 10 kids gathering around one child and making fun of their shoes, that makes it something very, very different. And so I think that's my advice to parents, which is try find out, is this happening time and again? And who was involved? The, the piece of advice I always used to give parents is keep a record. Write things down. Because then when you go to the teacher, when you go to the head teacher and say, well, look, I've got a list here. This is happening time and again. I think that's going to really help your case. And do you feel encouraged at the change you've seen since you were at school? Yeah, I mean, certainly... The fact that now there is even measures in place for monitoring bullying, the fact that schools inspectorates ask for statistics on bullying is a good thing. The downside of this, of course, is that I don't know many schools who don't try to fiddle their statistics on bullying. And I love nothing more than going into schools that say, we have a 0% bullying rate. And I'm like, please come on. I would much, much rather a school was up front and said, last year we had these instances of bullying and this is how we dealt with them. That to me is much more positive than a school pretending bullying doesn't happen because that's a lie. Do you think there's a link between teaching kids about difference and preventing internalised homophobia and preventing bullying? Gosh, I mean, that's a big question. Kids, now here's a spoiler, kids are vile. <laughs> um, um, they will they will find a weakness and they will pick on it. If a kid is coming across as gender non-conforming, they will say, why do you look like a boy? Why is your hair like a girl? If a kid has braces, they will make fun of braces. If a kid has freckles, they will make fun of freckles. Again, I'm not sure that sticking 30 children in a small, warm room is the ideal circumstances for children to thrive <laughs> and be friends with each other constantly. And the cheeky thing is, of course, it's about making them understand that if you are going to single out a child on the grounds of their gender or on the grounds of the colour of their skin or on their religion, that this is different, that this comes with a history and that, you know, this, you know, there are people in society who have been held down and treated really badly. And by you saying those things, that comes that comes with a harsher punishment than just picking on a child's freckles you know that you, and you need to be aware that when when you say that you're going to get into trouble and this is why you're going to get into trouble in australia um we've had a few things happen mainly in high schools where um schools have adopted a very open policy and they might have changed the way the toilets are or the uniform etc and typically there is always a cohort of people that will say this is politics gone mad, These, this, the left wing are taking over, blah, blah, blah. And um, one thing that I've heard people get really concerned about is that gender fluidity is too much for teenagers in particular to embrace and that they're confused and that they are at a very vulnerable time and that that makes it harder for them. I mean, how would you respond to that criticism? I think this is where it comes in really helpful that I was at high school in the 90s where we were, we were all 
very gender fluid back then and yet the world keeps turning you. It was, it was the era of Marilyn Manson and placebo. You know, there wasn't a boy on television who wasn't wearing eyeliner. It was the <laughs> 90s and yet the world kept turning. But the thing is, what's interesting is that was 20 years ago and we were having the same conversation. And I think historically, again, this probably happened during the 60s, during hippies and free love. Oh my gosh, it's political correctness gone mad. You know, it's going to be the end of civilization. <laughs> and, and yet the world keeps turning. I think it's good for schools to be ready. And I think it's good for schools to present their case to parents and say, well, well this is, you know, and, and it really is, it's for the mental and physical well-being of all our students. And it's but, often not the parents that have a problem anyway. It's yeah. outside Well, th- this is it. Media and I think, and- you know, you, you want young people to get off the bus every single day and feel safe. And actually, you have to sort of think in this situation, when you're dealing with young gay kids, young lesbian kids, young bisexual kids, um, young trans kids, they're the ones who are less likely to feel safe. You know, and so it's about sort of thinking, right, well, what can we put in place? What can we say to the whole school? Because by and large, actually, your your straight sort of cisgender kids, they're, they're not worried. They're living free from fear. Whereas your LGBT kids, they're going to school every day with a whole heap of fear. And so what can we do about that? These days, there is a lot more visibility of LGBT people in film, Mm -hmm. TV, the media. What role do you think that kind of representation has in attitudes across the broader society? It's such a chicken and egg question, isn't it? I, I often sometimes think, which came first? Is it that we saw LGBT people on the TV, so people felt emboldened to come out? Or is it that society has changed and the media has to reflect that? And I think it's about six of one, half a dozen of of the other. Um, I think it's really important. I think I would have come out much, much earlier. Had I been surrounded by trans role models as a teenager, I don't doubt I would have come out when I was 12 or 13. And that's by when, when... people on certain blogs are getting really irate about what would someone think of the children I'm like well this isn't a surprise there isn't a mystery it's just that you know teenagers young adolescents are on the internet which we never were so they have much much more access to role models and they can curate their own role models we were told who to look up to by Hollywood and by television Whereas young people today, 11, 12, 13 year olds, they can go online and they can create their own role models. And yeah, that is going on YouTube and seeing LGBT people of colour, disabled role models. And I think that's much better because you're so much more easily able to find someone who looks like you and sounds like you and thinks like you. And yeah, I came out as trans in my late 20s, but I have no doubt that, you know, if I'd been able to follow... Andrea Pejic on Instagram, I would have been like, oh my God, look at her. She's trans and she's a supermodel. I could be just like her. And I think that's a really positive thing. I like to end on a positive note, so I might wrap up there. Juno, thank you so much for coming in. Thanks for having me. That was Juno Dawson, award-winning author and journalist, former primary school teacher and trans activist, talking about bullying and her book, What is Gender? How Does It Define Us? and Other Big Questions. We'll pop a link up on our website. Just head to kindling.com.au. You've been listening to Kindling Conversation. If you enjoyed it, there's plenty more where that came from. Find other stories and interviews at our website, 
just head to kindling.com.au.